A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. The Gospel of the Lord. Our Father, we uh, come before you. We are grateful to be gathered together here in this space after such a long time away. We thank you that you have been with us uh, through all of our time away from each other, um, meeting in different ways. Uh, we thank you that you are here with us, and we thank you that your spirit is present. We ask that you would speak to us as we look into your word. Guide us to your truth. Uh, may we encounter you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Well, it is great to see everyone this morning. Um, it's, it's great to be here. We're back. I, it, yeah, it has been uh, 490 days since the last time we last were in person in this space. And take a moment and, and just, just think about that. That's a long time. As I was reflecting back on that last week before everything ground to a halt uh, back in March 2020, I realized that half the people that I met with that week, uh, friends, uh, people from work, family, school, people from school, people from church, um, half of those people actually no longer live in the United States. We have gone through, through a time and we are still going through such a time of upheaval and uncertainty and instability and change, it, it's quite unsettling. And I'm sure many of us are experiencing a mix of emotions. Whether you're here in person or even if you're, you're uh, listening in on Zoom, just being back in, in this space, uh, it, you, you feel a lot of things. I know there's been a yearning to return to normal, whatever, whatever normal was. And there's a growing awareness that whatever our new normal is, uh, it's, it's going to be different than whatever we had before. So it might seem strange to be looking at a passage about Jesus sending his disciples out two by two to preach and cast out demons and heal sick people. What does that have to do with the current time that we're in? I want to suggest that uh, what's going on in this passage is fundamental to our identity, our, who we are as Christians, both individually and who we are communally, who we are as a church, as Emmanuel Anglican NYC. What I want us to see in our passage is that there is a picture of Christian community not yet fully developed, not in its fully developed exhaustive form, but in an in initial stage 
as Jesus is beginning his mission of fixing what is wrong with the world as Mark records it for us. And as we look at this, we're given a glimpse of the community that we are a part of as a church that stands in continuity with what Jesus started and is continuing to do by the Holy Spirit to this very day. So what I want to highlight is that Mark is showing us that we are a community that is sent on a mission. And I want to break that down into three things. Basically, it's what is this community that we're supposed to be? What does it mean that we are sent? And what exactly is that mission? Okay, now that we're together, we're going to be talking about being sent. We, we have an opportunity right now in this time to shape whatever our new normal is. Um, and we need to be intentional about that as we come back together. So with that, um, let's, uh, let's look at what community is. Community is an elusive term that gets thrown around a lot. And it's not just in Christian circles. It's kind of become a buzzword in a lot of places and an ideal in other places, something that everybody's striving towards. Um, often it's the thing that drives someone to become a part of a particular church. Maybe it's a search for such a thing that has brought you to Emmanuel. Um, maybe today, maybe over the last, last year and a half. Now, now, I want to give a short definition of what I mean by community um, and what I think the Bible portrays for us. Community is it's a group of people that share a common mission, a common identity, a commitment to a place, people who care for each other, and they're in the mess of each other's lives. A shorthand way of describing this in Christian words is fellowship. We're, we're, we're a gathering that is a place of fellowship. And a Christian community foremost is a community that is centered around Jesus, around his teaching, around his example, most importantly, his presence with us, guiding us by his word, the Bible, and guiding us by his Holy Spirit. So we see examples of Christian community all throughout the Bible. A favorite of many people is in the book of Acts, where the descriptions of the early church there uh, often can get idealized. You know, people shared what they had. There was no needy person among them. Um, it's really great stuff. It, it, it's something to strive towards. But, but a lot of the examples of the church in the New Testament are of communities that are, quite frankly, an absolute mess. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote so many letters. That's why we have so many letters in the, in the New Testament. Letters to the church in Corinth and the church in Philippi and the church in Rome. Paul was pastoring communities that were experiencing different forms of crisis. Now, the community that we find in Mark chapter 6 isn't fully formed yet. It isn't yet the church in the book of Acts, or it isn't a particular church yeah, that's meeting in a place, a city like Ephesus or a place like New York City. Where, where we jump in, Jesus is gathering his 12 disciples. They're traveling around. And here we find Jesus sending out the disciples on a mission. And the things being done here are the foundation of what we inherit today as the mission of the church. Now, I'm going to go on a, on a brief tangent before I dig deeper into the specifics of our short bit of Mark 6 that we have. Um, I want to set the stage for the next few weeks that we have as we are coming together 
this summer. Um, we're, we're kind of in this space where it, it feels like we're, we're getting to know each other again, we're refocusing, um, where we're kind of rebooting. I don't know what all the right terms are. Um, it's almost like we're getting, getting our, our practice services in before the fall hits when, when the city uh, kind of comes alive um, after, after the summer. But as over the next few weeks, um, I want us to think intentionally about our expectations of gathering together again to worship Jesus. Now, a number of years ago, there was a psychologist named Scott Peck who, who broke down the formation of communities and any type of community, not just Christian church communities, but he broke it down into four main stages. And, and I want you to see if you resonate with any of these stages of community that he lays out. The first stage is what he called pseudo-community. Pseudo-community is that initial phase when you first find a group of people that you think you have been searching for, maybe, maybe your whole life, you know, finally, these are my people. They're so much better than the last church I was part of, or, or these people really seem to have things, you know, together. I feel so loved. I feel so welcomed. The music's exactly what I wanted. You know, it's community, just what I've been searching for. Um, but, but, but it's kind of a honeymoon phase before you realize that there is no perfect place. Um, and it's this, this kind of place where it's easy to just exist um, in a place of not a lot of depth. Doesn't mean there's not any depth, but it's easy to kind of skate along. So what happens is after you go through stage one, you go through stage two. It's got, got a simple name that he gives it. It's called chaos. All right, chaos. You realize, oh, these, these people are messed up too. Um, this isn't exactly how I envisioned things. I really don't agree with some of the things that are going on, some of the things that I'm hearing. I've had some conflict with some people that I really didn't want. Um, there's different groups with different ideas of how things should be run. Um, this is a stage where people will often just check out and leave, right? Often people you thought you were close to disappear and it's disillusioning and it's unsettling. Now, if you stick it out through the chaos, you enter into stage three, which is called emptying. It's a stage where hard conversations are had. Conflict is worked through. Presuppositions that you had are emptied out so that you can really own and contribute to this shared common identity and mission and purpose. Um, it, it, it's, it's working through all the hard stuff together in, in a lot of uncomfortable stuff. And all this hard work leads to a fourth stage, what's called true community, where we learn to live with and love other people, often who are very different than us. We care for each other, we challenge each other, we have really deep relationships, and we're okay with others who aren't exactly like me. And we can weather hard times together. Now, what I want to suggest is that what happened in the last year and a half with the onset of the pandemic is that whether you were in a place of pseudo community or true community in March 2020, all of us were thrown into a state of chaos. We didn't really have a choice in that. The world just kind of got thrown into chaos. Right? Work and life routines were disrupted. We couldn't meet in person for church. People got sick, people died, people moved, 
We were lonely, we were isolated. The city shut down. And thinking specifically in terms of church community, what all this did was expose where we were experiencing pseudo community and where we were experiencing true community. And now we're in a place of navigating the chaos and we're entering into a time of great opportunity, that emptying phase. And I think we've been in this place for a while. Um, we haven't been together. You know, we've been apart on Zoom. We've been kind of getting together. We've been in this place for a while where we've been wrestling with things like racism and politics and job security and mental health and all of these things. We're entering into a time of opportunity whereby we can challenge what needs to be challenged and embrace true and tough marks of Christian community. How do we respond to all of this as Christians? So turning back to our passage in Mark 6, uh, verses 7 to 13, what are we being challenged to embrace? And what do we need to let go of? Here we find that in the middle of chaos, one of the things that we're called to do is reach out to the world around us with the good news that Jesus is setting things right, healing people, and restoring us, restoring broken relationships with God, giving a foretaste of what things will be like when all things are made new. We find that this small community that Jesus has gathered around him is in an unsettled place. And wh where do I find that? Well, it's in the context surrounding our passage. Immediately before our, our passage in Mark, Jesus has just been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. The people he grew up with, relatives, those who would have known him the best, take offense at him, and he's actually unable to do much of anything there due to their unbelief. And immediately after our passage, Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, is beheaded by King Herod on a whim. And so sandwiched in the middle of this, rejection on one side, violent death on the other side, Jesus begins to send his disciples out. It's verse 7. So we have here this emerging community of disciples, followers of Jesus, dealing with the rejection in the one place you think Jesus would have a warm reception, and then immediately sent out. Jesus doesn't wait for things to settle down. And they don't even know yet that John is about to die, but Jesus sends them out. And note that Jesus begins to send them out. This is something that will characterize Jesus' followers throughout the rest of scripture and throughout the rest of church history. Right to today, we are a sent people. And that doesn't change based on our stability. I know that there's been a lot of anticipation for us to gather together here again. And it's a good impulse to gather together. We need to gather together. It's good to see your faces. But we gather together in the presence of Jesus to be sent out. And we don't wait till we have everything perfectly understood and stabilized before we go out. The 12 disciples are a community sent out on a mission in the middle of rejection, dislocation, and real threats to them. That's what we are too. And when we look at this passage, we are being reminded of the church's foundational identity. It was founded as a community of missionaries, a community that reaches out to the world around it. So we're a community, 
God is sent and we are sent into chaos, into the mess of the world around us. I want to spend the rest of our time looking closely at what this mission is all about that the disciples are sent to do. The first thing to note is that the things Jesus sends the disciples out to do are the very things that Jesus is doing himself. He's already been doing all of these things. We find these things in verses 12 and 13, where we learn that the disciples were proclaiming that people should turn to Jesus. That's to repent, to turn to Jesus. They were casting out demons and they were healing people. These three things, proclamation, casting out demons and healing, are all the things that only Jesus has done in Mark's gospel up to this point. But now suddenly his disciples are to do them and they are doing them. As they're calling people to turn to Jesus, they're healing people and they're delivering them from the deception and bondage of Satan. Jesus has given his followers authority, his authority, Jesus's authority over unclean spirits. God's people are drawn into mission, even when God is present among them as Jesus. And as they're figuring out what it means, what is Jesus doing? Half the time, the disciples are getting it wrong throughout the rest of the gospel, but Jesus is sending them out and they're learning on the fly. The second thing to note is that uh, there's this, these strange traveling requirements that Jesus tells the disciples to observe. What's up with that? We're going to find out that it has to do with being drawn up into God's mission, what he's doing in the world. If you look at verses eight and nine, it says, he, that's Jesus, charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Okay, that, that, that sounds kind of weird. And to understand this, we need to remember the events from the Old Testament that have shaped God's people. If you've been with us at Emmanuel uh, over really the last couple of years, I think, um, you've heard that one event keeps coming up over and over again. It's uh, the operating system that the New Testament runs on. It's the story of the Exodus, where God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. Mark, when he's writing his gospel, deliberately includes references and allusions to the Exodus story. He's, he's showing us how Jesus is leading his people out of the bondage that they're in. In fact, the whole book of Mark is structured to show how Jesus functions kind of like Moses. Moses, the main figure in the book of Exodus. Moses, who is God's shepherd. Moses, who leads God's people out of slavery and into the promised land. Jesus is kind of like Moses, but he's a whole lot better. And this promised land, that place um, that Moses leads God's people into, it's supposed to be a picture of what things are supposed to be like. God's people in God's place, in God's presence. But there's a problem, and it recurs over and over in, in Exodus and really throughout the Bible. Um, the problem is that God's people keep messing things up repeatedly. Um, in the book of Exodus, even as God's giving Moses commands up on the mountain, God's people are worshiping and building a golden calf. Um, even Moses himself ends up messing up, and he actually ends up not entering into the promised land with, with, uh, with God's people. And so the whole story of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus's arrival is of God's people turning away from him, doing their own thing, 
and causing a world of hurt and pain. And yet it's also the story of God pursuing his people and seeking to bring them peace and wholeness and restoration. He keeps calling his people back to him. And as we speed on through the Old Testament, we come to the book of Isaiah. And this is the other uh, main Old Testament book that Mark draws on to show us who God is. It's kind of like Exodus is like the operating system. And then the next system layered on that is Isaiah. And then layered on top of that is Mark. And so uh, in, in the book of Isaiah, God's people are on the verge of catastrophe. Half the kingdom has been destroyed. The remaining half is in the process of being broken up and sent into exile. And in the middle of all this, uh, we have this call God gives to his people in Isaiah 30. You've probably heard me say it before. Um, it says, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you are unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. God calls his people to return, but they're unwilling. And so God lets them do their own thing. And that's what God does even with us still today. He's not about manipulation or coercion, but he's firm and clear on what is good and right and what is harmful and what is destructive. But even as God's people reject his call to return to him in Isaiah, Isaiah builds up a picture of what the world will be like when God really sets things right when he sends his promised servant, a servant who will suffer, who will take on the consequences of all the rejection and lead his people to restoration, a servant leader who will succeed where Moses failed. Isaiah looks forward to a world that is flourishing, where people live in peace with each other and with God and care for the creation he has placed us in. We learn in Mark that Jesus is the person who enables all of this. And so this weird reference to taking a staff and no shoes or food is an allusion to when God delivered his people from slavery in Exodus 12:11. Exodus 12:11 says, "In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." It's right when God is about to deliver his people out of Egypt and they're, 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 e they're, they're eating that Passover and God's like, get ready to go. Things are happening. That's deliberately what Mark's showing here. As, as the disciples are being sent out on mission, it's like God's, God's saying, Jesus is saying, okay, get ready. It's about to happen. Things are happening. But even as things are happening, it's like, you're being sent out on mission too. So, so this is just part of a whole series of allusions on the part of Mark to God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. Only now Jesus is delivering people from the spiritual chains that bind us. It's what the Bible calls sin. He repairs the internal mess that we're in. But as he does that, it affects everything else. People are healed. There's physical manifestations. There's a foretaste of what a restored world is like. People are delivered from demonic oppression. It's a sign of the power of Jesus. Now, what's important in all of this for us this morning is that what Jesus does in Mark and what his disciples, his followers do, it goes hand in hand. We're part of the same mission. We can't separate it out. 
But here's the problem. The problem in all of this is we're like Moses. We mess things up. We lose the plot. We get caught up in the chaos. We look at what the disciples are doing and think, you know, that's amazing what the disciples are doing. Or, or maybe we think that's weird. Like, I don't, I don't know what, what your thoughts are on that. But, but we look at them, we read this passage, and then we look at our lives. And quite frankly, you know, we're just trying to keep our heads above water, right? Maybe it's financially, or maybe it's relationally, you know, or maybe it's all, all we're ever doing right now is working and, and we're exhausted from this pandemic, you know, we're struggling with family that we're estranged from. We've barely seen friends for so long, right? Never mind reaching out to people, right, who don't know Jesus, who we don't even know. Like, like, like we just have all this stuff going on. And, and in the midst of it, you know, it's easy to just, just be, be tossed along with the waves. But the good news in all of this is that where Moses failed, Jesus succeeds. And where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Because if we just keep our eyes on what, 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 what we're in and what we're struggling with, um, we're, 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 we're going get, to get caught up in that. But we, when we turn our eyes to Jesus, we realize Jesus, Jesus is the one who does this. He's not calling us to do something um, that, that he hasn't done and that we're just on our own to do. Jesus is the one who brings about true healing and restoration. And the rest of the book of Mark is about Jesus going to the cross where he deals with the mess of sin in our lives and frees us to live a life in which we participate fully in God's good creation. And so all we need to do, what we need to do, it's deceptively simple. You've probably heard it before. So we need to turn to Jesus whether it's the first time or whether it's the 10,000th time. We need to acknowledge the mess that our lives are or the messes that we have made around us. And then Jesus goes with us. We go to Jesus and Jesus goes with us. Or as we see in our passage, Jesus gives us his authority to go out. Jesus sends us his Holy Spirit as we venture out into the chaos because things are still messy, right? Like, like we, we still don't really know what things are going to be like. And, and, and here in, in our part of the world, you know, there, there's, there, there seems to be a lot of steps toward like normal stuff, but that's not the case elsewhere in the world. And, and we're still in, in such a, such a place of uncertainty, but, but, but we're still called to deal with the chaos that's in our community. And so, so as we engage in this mission that, that we have, we wrestle with the hard things that come up, right? So, so there's, there's things like systemic injustice, or there's the idols of politics and nationalism, and, and there's deep heart wounds that we bear, right? There's all of these things. This is the opportunity that we have that we're in right now is instead of, of fighting it through is, is, is turning to Jesus, bringing it to Jesus together, figuring out how do we bear each other's burdens? How do we, we bring those burdens together to Jesus? How does he shape us so that, that we can really care for each other and be that community that, 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 that brings stability centered on Jesus in the midst of things that change? You know, over the next month, 
the passages that we're going to be looking at, this is just one of our, our lectionary passages that, that kind of comes up every, every summer. But, but the other ones, we're, we're going to be looking at how Jesus doesn't just send us out into the chaos, but he actually goes out there with us. We're not just abandoned to it. And Jesus goes with us into chaotic situations, wherever it is that we find ourselves in. And, and we're also going to see how Jesus feeds us as we gather together. There's this, we come together, we feed on Jesus. We, 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 we're, we're spiritually restored. We're spiritually filled up. And then we're sent out. And there's a rhythm to it. We're in a place where we're building new rhythms in our life. And so this is just one of those really important things to have where, where we're, we're coming together, looking at Jesus, being with Jesus, feeding on Jesus, being sent out, and then coming back together. This is all an extension of this mission identity that Jesus gives to us. So we focus our hearts on Jesus, right? We, we, we focus on the grace that he pours out on us. And as we do that, we find that we will inevitably be reaching out to the world that lies close to Jesus's heart. It's my prayer as we've come together here, that as we are going to go back out, that our hearts are formed to be more like Jesus's. So with that in mind, um, we will turn to singing, to, to focusing our hearts further on Jesus in song. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.